vintage sand. Hello, hello, hello. We are back after a month and a half, way too long away. I wonder why. That's just life inter intervening our busy, busy lives. Uh, welcome. This is Team Vintage Sand to episode 24 of our podcast, which is going to be the second part of our tribute to study of and discussion of uh, African-American film. Uh, we are Team Vintage Sand, as I said, as always, John Meyer, Michael Edmond, and your humble narrator, Josh Cabot. And we are, uh, we spent the last episode talking about sort of the history of the portrayal of African-American characters in film from its very beginnings all the way through, you know, this sort of current renaissance in African-American film. And so to that end, we're going to talk today a little bit about um, African-American directors and films by African, in the first film in Hollywood directed by an African-American doesn't happen until 1969, right? That's Gordon Parks and The Learning Tree, which is the first film we should mention because it's a, that's a lovely film. And his next, oh, yeah. film, his next film was Shaft. So <laughs> there you go. Is, is he still alive? No, Gordon I don't Parks? think so. I think, he was, I think he was fairly old back then. Oh, um, okay. And, uh, but before we dive in, so our goal is to uh, introduce you, open some doors to some lesser known works by well-known filmmakers, people like Spike Lee and John Singleton, but also talk about some lesser known films by directors like, for example, Julie Dash, whose Daughters of the Dust is the only film she's ever gotten to make in all these years. And it's shocking because it's one of the most beautiful original films, but, uh, it's also it's con it's considered to be the first theatrical feature film that had a wide distribution directed by a black woman. Black woman, and that doesn't happen until 1992. I mean, this is what yeah. we're talking about. But yeah. now, as we mentioned at the end of the episode last uh, last time, there's a real sense of optimism in that not only has this been a golden time for African-American directors, not only people like Ryan Coogler and Ava DuVernay who've gotten critical acclaim, but also we're gonna talk about people like Justin Simeon who did Dear White People and Boots Riley who did Sorry to Bother You. And of course, Jordan Peele has had tremendous success. But as we mentioned last time, African-Americans are starting to control the means of production. As we were saying, Tyler Perry has built himself a studio in Atlanta. And we were just talking about the film that uh, premiered on Netflix this week, uh, Rada Blank's uh, The 40-Year-Old Version, V-E-R-S-I-O-N, <laughs> which was uh, financed by Lena, Lena Waite, who's an actress who was on Masters of None with Aziz Ansari, and who's just brilliant, and who was the writer of a film that Mike's going to talk about, Queen and Slim. And so we are not only getting great films by black directors, we're also getting African-Americans involved in the production and the ownership of films, which is something that's really, really new. So, but before that, you know, we had our last session in late August, and since then Chadwick Boseman passed away. Very shockingly, very yeah. suddenly, and it's sort of appropriate to begin this episode by talking about him. Um, tell me, especially uh, since you guys are both actors, tell me your thoughts about him as an actor. Uh, oh, I excellent, thought he was excellent actor. Very versatile. Very versatile. I mean, how many people can play James Brown, Thurgood Marshall, Marshall and Jackie Robinson? 
Yeah. And have you guys have you guys seen Get It On Get It On Up, the James Brown movie? Absolutely. Yes. Oh my oh my God. He's what amazing a- in that. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, and you know, he but what I also love about him is that like some of our favorite actors like, you know, a Michael Caine or a Philip Seymour Hoffman or going back a long way to someone we've mentioned a lot, Claude Rains, even when he has a tiny part like he did in The Five Bloods or in a film like Draft yeah. Day, you know, the Kevin Costner film. Uh, he, he owns those tiny parts too. Um, yes. So just, just a remarkable actor top to bottom. And, you know, of course he, he was black, he was King T'Challa, he was Black Panther and yeah. made that character. I'm, I'm very happy to see though, that they're going to continue the series. Turns out, I'm not, I'm not a fan of the comic book, but it turns out that in the comic book, his sister, who's sort of the Q character, the one who comes up with all the gadgets and such, yeah. eventually takes over for T'Challa as the Black Panther. And that's gonna happen. The act- actress who plays her, um, uh, Letitia Wright, uh, who plays uh, Shuri is going to be the next Black Panther, so they are going to go. They're ahead. A different director, though, isn't it? That's doing the. Yeah, I think Kubler's just going to produce, but um, yeah, that's what I thought. But yeah, I mean, we haven't seen a talent like that, and the fact that he was able to—clearly, he was ill during <laughs> the making of Black Panther, during the making of uh, Twenty One Bridges, which was not so yeah. good. So what? Uh, and yeah, yeah. Um, and the he was sick but, for a long time. No, one and he has one more movie in the can that hasn't been released yeah. yet. Um, Ma, Rainey, Ma Rainey's that's right. the August Wilson. Oh, yeah. really? Oh, yeah. so that's really something to look forward to. I yeah, uh, it's just it's just hard to believe that he's gone. It's almost like a James Dean thing, but I think kind he's a better actor than James Dean. <laughs> oh God, yes. yes. Yeah. Well, Much as Michael I- and I are better actors than James Dean. <laughs> you're tearing me apart, John. You're tearing me apart. I hear you. I'm afraid I have to agree with John. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> no, I love the. I I don't love Giant Therese to be, and I do love Rebel, and I love him in Rebel. But it's more about his presence, you know, than his acting per se. So today we're going to sort of structure. You know, a lot of times we do lists: our five favorites, our ten favorites, our best of. This time we're just going to sort of sort of throw things out there, and again. Our goal is just to open doors uh, to maybe get you to see, track down some films that you may have either not heard of or not seen, or films that you may have seen when they came out, but not um, in a long while. So let's start with Spike Lee, you know, which is where that first great wave of uh, Black directors came from in the very late 80s, early 90s. Uh, Michael, you wanted to talk about Do the Right Thing. Well, I just saw it on Saturday night for the on Showtime for the first time in 31 years. And actually, I was going to buy a copy uh, because, you know, the way you feel about it. You know, you just said it was bit, the, be- yeah. the best film you've seen in the last 30 years. American. Okay. Yeah. Uh, American, right. And I did watch it again. And I did think, for the most part, it is a brilliant Brilliantly written, brilliantly directed, and with one exception, a brilliantly acted film. Pretty well shot too. Give her an very well shot. Oh yeah, yeah. It's just one exception. I love, I love, I love the opening. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, It goes on a little. It goes on a little bit too long that credit sequence, but I really liked it a lot. I had no problem with that. Very stylized. No, well, he always he said to you know Chuck D from Public Enemy said Spike Lee called him and said I want you to do the song for this and Spike said I want an anthem. 
and that's exactly what he got boy fight the power it hasn't mm -hmm. lost any of its power in yeah. 31 years not so, at all who's your acting no, unfortunately it is still extremely relevant very much i mean so. that, it could have, it could have come out yesterday and very much so my one problem is spike lee always he's the woody allen of his own films yeah woody allen that would give him a compliment wow i'm sorry he's not a he's not a good actor and there were scenes no. that i was watching uh thinking oh my god why didn't you cast somebody else instead of yourself because everybody else is so marvelous in the yeah play. everybody uh, yeah, everyone's smallest yeah yes oh i mean ossie davis Oh, Davis. Oh, well, of course. You know, um, Robin Harris and no, Samuel um, L. Jackson as the uh, Mr. You know, the radio person. Oh, and and and, and uh, his sister is wonderful. I think she. Yeah. I don't. I don't know Bob, if she's yeah. working uh, that much, but and she. Danny, everybody's Danny wonderful. Aiello. And Danny Aiello is great. Of course, I mean, he got the Oscar nomination. The only one. Yep. But Lee originally. Just, Originally, Robert De Niro was was cast for that part, and De Niro yeah. turned it down. And uh, when Danny Aiello was approached, he said he would do it. He said, "If I can rewrite some of this," and really Spike agreed. Yes, interesting. Yeah, because Danny Aiello thought it thought it was it was just too it was too black and white. No okay. pun intended. But um, I, I like the other one. Uh, wanted to give the character, you know, a little bit more development. But so I, were the sons. The sons were beautifully written. Yep, Richard Edson and John Turturro. And uh, Turturro. I love Paul Benjamin, Frankie Faison, and Robin Harris as the three, as the chorus, you know, uh, yep. Coconut Sid and Sweet Dick Willie. And, you know, the, every little part, the guys who played the cops were great. Um, Roger. But Lee, yeah. yeah. But played. Lee, to. to, to Quote, uh, we, we write Dorothy Parker. He runs the uh, gamut from A to B. Yeah. But it, not, it, it, it didn't buy. I, I, didn't can, I can see why some people, though, don't like the movie. Not saying it's good or bad, but because so much of the movie, it's like picking at a scab. You know, it's... Well, and, it's a scab and that I know, picked. Yes. Well, I agree. I agree. And also, you know, when you hear someone stupidly say... It's so stupid because he's complaining about the pictures on the walls. That, that's what it's really about. It's about the, the anger and lack of dialogue, that, and that's how it starts to come out. Exactly. It's not, the, it's not a little trivial thing. It just happens to be the thing that kind of sparks it. And that shot, the last shot in the, in the, in the second to last sequence where Smiley is putting the picture he's been carrying around of Martin yeah. on the wall, yeah. the flames yeah. behind his head, and it's just, it's just perfect every time i watch it though i get so frustrated because i just want to smack them and says why don't you just put up let them you know say something like well if you bring in a few pictures i'll put them up too like what's the big deal yeah <laughs> no and right well, it's his first, place you know it's it's just fun to show that film to people who love breaking bad and you're like that's gus fring that's the first time we saw well second time because john carlo esposito is also in school days but oh god Esposito was was just brilliant. Bugging out. Oh, god, and, he was good. and Bill Nunn is Radio Rahim and, yeah. and uh Roger Gwenver Smith is Smiley. I mean there's it's any and Rosie Perez who can be really annoying. She was great. That was her was her film debut. I think that's yeah, I think that's her first movie. She, she was wonderful. 
Yeah. But the way Lee plays them, and also sometimes the way it's written, it, it's just like, why do people, why are people attracted to this guy? You know, he's just such a, uh, I don't know. I don't know what, what the I, word is. What I love it, love about the film is, and I've said this before in these pages, is that it does that, pulls that miracle act of being incredibly specific, this one block on this one day, and yep. yet yeah. it's completely universal as well. Yes, I don't know exactly. how he does that. It's I thought of Street Scene. I'm sure Spike Lee has seen it. Oh, yeah. listen, like the Coen brothers, you know, who he went to NYU yeah. with, he is a, mm -hmm. always the film school. I mean, yeah. there's, a, there's the West Side Story moment where the girl's drawing in chalk on the... Um, right on yes. the sidewalk, yeah. you know, which is, which is straight from West Side Story. And of course, most famous- Far better movie than West Side Story. <laughs> Radio Rahim's uh, Power of Love and Hate, stolen almost word for word from, um, from Night of the Hunter. Night of the Hunter, yeah. yeah. yeah which is, which is one yeah. of the story of love and hate. It's amazing. And you know, I, I think that, that Malcolm X is, is got the same kind of, of uh, reputation now as, you know, that's a flawed film, but not a flawed performance as far as I'm no, concerned. He, no, uh, Lee knows how to direct actors. I so think the you, best oh, yeah. performance uh, Edward Norton ever gave I was, was the say, 25th hour. If you had to recommend two or three Spike Lee films that people might not have seen or might not have seen since they came out, what would they be? And 25th, 25th hour. 25th hour is absolutely Absolutely. Wonderful. I think that is uh, a brilliant film. Crooklyn. You know, it's funny, um, I, what, what um, the 40-year-old version is about is that Rada Blank basically plays herself. She's a playwright who has gotten some early success, but she wants to write plays just about Black folks living their lives, and white investors aren't interested unless it's what she calls poverty porn. You know, unless it's about <laughs> suffering and gentrification, it's brilliant. And, and that's one of the reasons I love Crooklyn so much, is that he kind of steps away from the political and just tells the story of his family. Well, the incident yep. in his family growing up, yep. and I mean, he gets very dramatic at the end, but uh, that's just a lovely film. Right. I remember mm -hmm. liking Clockers. That was his, Clockers it? is good, yeah. Clockers, Clockers is good. good. Well, and Crooklyn, by doing what he does, just showing that that family and how they live day to day and everything and their relations between uh you know the siblings and with their parents and then you get a little taste of the street life around them and their neighbors it does become political without hitting you over the head with it though yes exactly exactly um, um but it's yeah it's a beautiful movie and, and I, I, there's a scene there's a scene that's always it was always so bizarre to me and it's and also so so moving at the same time because you see all the kids together they're enjoying like this a moment together watching tv watching. and of course the the constantly you know yelling at them for watching tv and they're watching the partridge family and singing along too. Yes. <laughs> and they're singing along <laughs> well and of course the soundtrack to crooklyn is like if you had the best am radio station in the world in 1973 on and it's just endlessly great music everything um i'm going to throw bamboozled in there too except for the last 10 15 minutes of because he completely loses control of the ending but the idea the premise of bamboozled is so smart and so ahead of its time and that's a film that's being reevaluated by critics i think and sort of moving up in in the world of spike lee 
I'd like to see it again. I was disappointed when I the that's one how kind of how I, I I yeah I felt that it was very uneven, but I haven't seen it since it first came out. Terrible. I would have to see it again. Awful. Yeah. Well, that but, I do remember. Yeah. But those of you who haven't seen it, the premise is that Damon Damon Wayans plays a, a TV executive who's about to get fired and to sort of get revenge on the network because he figures it'll sink them. He proposes that they do essentially a minstrel show. And the network somehow accepts it, and much to his horror, it becomes <laughs> a nationwide sensation, and everyone's walking around in blackface. I mean, it is one of the most, one of the sharpest, most well thought out, and funniest satires you'll ever see. Again, it just kind of loses it at the end. But yeah, I, I remember thinking it was a great idea, but the presentation just didn't match match the idea. But it, as John said, it's been you know years since i've seen it did you guys like inside man the yes one? yeah yeah i, I thought did. it was very very entertaining there's a perform that's what that's a i hated jodie foster in that and she's usually well, a good actress but that was the character i think problem with jodie foster that character required a sense of humor and required a certain uh appeal which she doesn't have She's technically yeah, an excellent I was say, actress. I was say, I thought she did about as well as she could have in a past, in a part that she's miscasting. Yeah. Ag agreed, but it's a very twisty and fun story, and it's so New York that yeah, yeah. where where yeah. you know they're they're they've got the loudspeaker going. They think it's a political hostage situation, and the, there's Albanian. <laughs> they figure out it's Albanian, and they bring some of the guy's <laughs> wife in, and she has a list of demands before she translates. You know, I want my parking tickets eliminated. I want it's yeah. so New York, and so is Twenty Eighth <laughs> Hour. There was a period there in the two thousands where Spike, as I said last week, last time was sort of becoming Woody Allen, the poet laureate of New York, because Woody had decamped for London by that point. And, right. you know, there is no, boy, if you wanted to show someone a film about 9-11, I, I don't think there's a better one than 25th Hour, because 9-11 is all over that film. I would recommend to anyone who is not familiar with the documentaries to definitely see them. Oh, absolutely, The Four Little Girls, oh my God. Four That's a girls. brilliant piece of film. Uh, the, the one about New Orleans. Yeah. Not just yeah. Levy's Broke, which was amazing. And I'm thrilled because we're recording this on October 13th. And this Saturday, his film of David Byrne's uh, Broadway show, American Utopia, is. Oh, that's right. That's his film. Is premiering on HBO. And uh, since David Byrne participated in what I humbly consider to be the greatest concert film ever made, that would be Stop Making Sense. Making Sense. Also directed by a great that director. That is good. That is, that is good. I'm very excited was, about it. Wasn't that Jonathan Demme who directed? That was Demme who did that one, yeah. Yeah. And, and so this is Spike directing. And I saw American Utopia on stage. It was amazing. I heard it was good. I couldn't get a ticket. Yeah, it was. It I was, was thinking good. of going, yeah. And... Uh, it, I'm really excited about that. So the other great figure of that first wave of uh, black directors was John Singleton. And, you know, obviously Boys in the Hood is the film to see. Uh, any others of his, I happen, I like Poetic Justice. I'm constantly surprised at how good, you have two non-actors in the main parts, Tupac and Janet Jackson, and they're both quite good. And I love Higher Learning. Yeah, well, it's, I don't know, I, I mean, I don't think it's a bad movie. Just somehow I just, it's one of those movies I felt like I was being lectured. 
Yeah, kind of. It's not, you know, yeah. it's not the character. Even though I agree with everything that's being said to me, I, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I get it. I get it. I get it. But there are some very powerful moments in that movie. Yeah, and the ending, everything, all the different stories coming together in the climax at the end. It's very, very, I'm sorry, Michael, I'm going to invoke one of your favorite films. It's very Nashville-y. I mean, it's not, not at the level of Altman, but it's that structure. I'm ashamed to say I've not seen it. It's, it's really smart and worth another look. And of course, you guys know how I feel about Rosewood. I think Rosewood is a, a very conventionally made film, but it's a story yeah. that has never been told. Excellent cast, you know. It's kind of, it's sort of, it's sort of like an old western the way it's done. That's sort of like the mysterious, you know, loner coming to town who kind of helps to save everyone, and that character is completely fictional, which is why is which is why a lot of the survivors of the actual Rosewood tragedy did not like the movie. They they did not like what he did with that at all. But uh, uh, because but, they were kind of like, we really? didn't, you know, we were the ones who, you know, we, we saved ourselves. We didn't need some outsider to help us. What I love about the film, as I've mentioned before, is that I'm a Zora Neale Hurston fan. And there was, uh, Darnell Martin made a TV film of Their Eyes Were Watching God, Hurston's Best, with Halle Berry. Uh, and it's okay, but Zora Neale Hurston as an anthropologist and ultimately as a fiction writer, spent her time in in those Northern Florida towns that were settled by ex-slaves. And I think Rosewood gives you a better evocation of what life was like in those towns um, than- Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, so I think it's worth it just for that. And then Singleton, you know, started doing, you know, the Shaft remake and Too Fast, Too Furious, and it became a very good, Craftsman director and directed yeah. a lot of TV and then, you know, left us way too young. Yeah, he was about 51. Why, I don't know exactly why that happened. Was he just not writing his own, his own screenplays or was he not able to get what he wanted to get have done done? I, I, or was he trying to, was he accepting those projects to get something else done? I don't know. Maybe in the hope of financing, you know, his, his own projects. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's just, but, you know, whatever you feel about him, Boys in the Hood stands as one of the great oh, debut, yeah. debut films by an American director. And what was he, 22? Yeah, 23. Yeah, very that? powerful. Unbelievable. Yeah, very powerful movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if Cuba Gooding's good, you know it's a good film. So. He, was good with that. he was good with actors. He was great. He was really yeah. great. Uh, Ro- Rosewood, I mean, Rosewood, I have to say, is very well acted. Every single person is good. Uh, Bruce, and, I mean, Bruce McGill, especially, I mean, he plays a horrible, uh, horrible person. I mean, evil. But he's, God, he's so good in it. Yeah. And I he love, he's a very underrated actor. A very underrated. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Michael Rooker, too. And, oh, yeah. You know, who plays the sheriff who's trying to balance things, trying to keep things. And, you know, it's Michael Rooker, so he's never going to do it. But he's, that's, <laughs> where, whatever happened to him? Whatever happened to him? He doesn't work anymore. I don't see him anymore. I, I don't he probably does a lot of TV. That's when you don't hear of somebody, it means he does a lot of episodic TV. That used to be a step down. It's not anymore for me. No. It's, direct it's a way of working. And it's a step up. I mean, you know, I don't think anyone would consider, you know, Breaking Bad, for example, or Mad Men any less of a storytelling genius than any film you can name in the last 10 years. So 
Things have changed. All right, so let's, um, I was gonna go back to the 70s for a moment and um, talk about, we talked about black exploitation last week and the sort of double-edged sword that it was, you know, because again, it was giving African-American cast and crew and writers and directors jobs at the expense though of perpetuating a lot of stereotypes uh, and, and not good ones. But on the other hand, um, I have I have to mention two Van Peebles films. First of all, have you guys seen Sweetback? Yeah, Sweetback. I, I have not seen Sweetback. Sweet Sweetback's badass song, the film that yeah. kind of kicked the whole genre off in its own way. And I saw it when it came out. What did you think? Do you remember? I was the only white person in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I remember the most. Uh, that's awesome. I mean, absolutely the only one. <laughs> I mean, and it was rather shocking for its time. It and was shocking, very, but I found a lot of it funny. Yeah, no, and he, very smart guy who, ne- you know, yeah. was, I, I think I told you guys, I got to meet him once and he was very headstrong and he was supposed to direct Shaft. And he basically talked his way out of it because he was just unwilling to bend on anything. And so they said, ah, let's get that guy who directed Learning Tree in here. And so Gordon Parks ended up directing it. But Sweetback is very much worth tracking down. It's low budget and it feels it, but boy, it's a radical film in its own way. Yeah, especially for that time. And his son, Mario, you know, had a string of not so good, but I, all right, so John, you're gonna disagree with me on this one. I love New Jack City. Look, I'm not saying it's The Godfather or Goodfellas, but I think it's as classically constructed as any of those great 30s gangster films or even some of the 70s gangster films. Well, actually, since now you, since you say that, I can see, I can see sort of the, the relation to 30s gangster movies or whatever, that, that kind of genre. I just think, I just don't like the way it's directed. I don't like, sometimes there's, there are scenes where I didn't like how he placed his camera. I don't like the use of the slow motion. It, it made it, it made it, every, whenever he did that, it started to make it a little cartoony. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, Wesley Snipes is excellent in it. Brilliant. Totally. Really, 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 really good. And you know, it's, way, it's, sort of, it's almost, there is an aspect to it. It's almost like he was trying to make an homage to B, to B movies. Absolutely. Completely. Yeah. And yeah. in its own way, very political. You know, the whole, you know, we don't, we don't, oh. we don't make this stuff here. It, someone sends it to us and, you know, is keeping us down. And yeah. listen, any film that could get good performances from Ice-T and Judd Nelson, you got to give him some credit. <laughs> well, for most of the movie, Judd Nelson is just sort of like sitting in the background. He does, that character doesn't really come to the foray until like that, say this, the third part of the movie, say. The, you know, the last third of the movie. Because before that, he's just sort of like in scenes listening or, you know, you see him in the background, he makes maybe one comment, and then the character starts to become more important and more involved in, in the story. But yeah, I think if you look at it, not necessarily comparing it to say Godfather 1, 2 or Goodfellas, but comparing it to Public Enemy or Little Caesar or Scarf, the original Scarface, forget the palm I'm talking about, Howard Hawks, it, it's yeah. the same story. It's, you know, the character who builds an empire yeah. and, yeah. you know, kill, kills, his, kills his best friend who he thinks is betraying him and, you know, starts to get more paranoid. It's kind of the Macbeth structure. And... Um, 
I, I really, really like it. And, and then it, you have that wild courtroom scene. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying... Won't, we won't say anything else because anyone who, is, who has not seen it, who wants to see it, will ruin it for them. So <laughs> I'm not saying it's a flawless film, but it surprises it surprised me at the time how good it was. And by the way, while we're on Wesley Snipes, that's another Spike Lee film that has that I thought at the time was almost as good as Do the Right Thing, which has disappeared, and that's Jungle Fever. I, I don't know why. It was a big hit when it came out. I mean, this, the soundtrack is bad. I mean, and that's- Actually, Well, that's what I remember. I remember the music being just overbearing. Yeah, it was only Stevie Wonder, I mean. <laughs> I know, but it just, it didn't, sometimes you can have good music, but it doesn't fit the film, and it, his score did not. Well, sometimes Spike Lee use, has too much music. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Absolutely. That's that is that is one of his downfalls sometimes. Although it works in Crooklyn, where there isn't a moment where there isn't, you know, some. Yeah, and that movie. Yes, that movie it works. Yeah, that movie it works. works. Do the right thing. You know, there was a lot of music in that, but it worked there too. Yeah. yeah, but I, I think yes. I really think Jungle Fever is worth another watch. Uh, very. I love. Um, and Samuel Jackson, who's his brother, you know, who's a drug addict, and and oh my God, Wesley's brilliant architect, there. remember? And his, but his parents, played by of course Ruby D and and Ozzy Davis, seem to love Samuel Jack Gator, his character more, even though Wesley Snipes' character is a success in the world. And yeah. uh, it, it's it's really Annabella Shiora is great in it. It's about a very it's sort of an interracial. Affair, but there's a lot of other stuff going on. There. I hear she, she and Lee did not get on well. It was, it was not a happy. Well, we don't. Uh, we don't. We we'll only have conjecture, so let's not go there. <laughs> but Wesley Snipes is sort of the, the the Black Nicholas Cage. I mean, someone who could have been a tremendous serious actor and chose to instead do action movies. You know, um, for which I assume he got well paid. But it's a shame because you look. Even at though he didn't pay his taxes, him. supposedly. But he didn't pay his taxes. <laughs> there's that. He's great in Mo Better Blues, too, another Spike Lee film from that period that's, yeah. that's underway. Oh, I forgot about that one, yeah. yeah. I like Mo Better Blues. I do, yeah. too. Uh, the anti-Semitism there is a little bit intense with the Totoro brothers playing Mo and Josh Flatbush. Oh, yeah. 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 I remember at the time. Every other line is, yes. we'll sue you. We'll sue you. Yeah. So I was yeah. like, mm, God, Spike, you're making it hard for me to defend you. But, yeah. but the music, and it, that was, of course, his first time working with Denzel Washington, and fortunately not his last. Do you guys like He Got Game, by the way? I haven't about seen it since it came out. I haven't oh, seen it is that the one with Woody? No. Snipes and no, 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 no. No, that's the one where Denzel Washington plays, you know, an Earl Monroe style basketball player whose son yeah. is, is a prodigy and all the colleges are recruiting him. Right. Uh, I didn't see it. Based on Stephon Marbury's story. It's an yeah, interesting film. It. I've seen it. I've seen I haven't seen it since it came out. I thought it was pretty good. It's pretty good. And I felt that way. And Mike, I know you disagree. I felt that way about Chirac which was, uh, we're back on Spike, which is a very ambitious film, you know, trying to adapt Les Estrada to Chicago. Yeah, I wanted to like that so much. It was a better idea than it was in- Well, yeah. Yeah, but still, and you know, I really liked, uh, I really liked Black Klansman and I liked Five Bloods. I love Black Klansman. Yeah, Black Klansman is I, I think that is, now that to me is a totally flawless movie. So Spike is back, boy, is that good. Yeah. So, and staying in the 70s for a second, um, talk about hard to track down. I mentioned last week uh, Charles Burnett's Killer, uh, Killer of Sheep. 
Have you guys gotten to see that? It's almost impossible. No, I, no. I tried. I kept looking up some things. It's just, you just can't find it. And I, if you go on YouTube, you can see some little, you know, snippets of it. Um, I guess it's because of the, the music rights that they right. can't, they can't stream it. But again, back to uh, back to the forty-year-old version and Rada Blank's complaint that she just wanted to tell stories of African American middle-class families living their lives. You know, nothing political, nothing. You know, no one marching, no one suffering, no poverty porn, <laughs> as she says. And that's killer of sheep. It's just about this family that's trying to stay together in Los Angeles, and he works in a slaughterhouse, which is where the title comes from. And there are just some beautifully filmed. Uh, wonderfully quiet moments. I think I mentioned there's a scene where he and his wife just put on a record and start start dancing, and it's one of the most intimate, um, film, you know, moments in a film you'll Ooh, ever. The sleep with anger is very it's readily available. Oh, you know, I, I love I, to I sleep like, with anger. I like to sleep with anger, not that much though. Not as oh, much. Oh, I as thought that. I think I think it's Danny Glover, my favorite Danny Glover performance. I kind of love him as Paul D and Beloved, but yes, I hear you. I mean, it's a great performance and very a very nuanced performance. A lot. Yeah. Of, yeah. That's a complicated film. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, I I remember really I like really it. liking it. Yeah, I did too. So we, I recommend that. And one thing I didn't know is that there were sort of an unofficial you know, crew of uh, black filmmakers at UCLA in the 70s, um, Burnett was among them and also among them was Julie Dash. And Julie Dash, for some reason that is just beyond my comprehension, because if you watch Daughters of the Dust from 92, which as Mike pointed out is the first widely released film. John pointed that out. <laughs> oh, that was John, sorry. Um, by a uh, by a black female director, it's it, it's just beautiful. It is yeah. It's the, the images. The images are really really beautiful. It's I can see why it's not a movie that a lot of people love because it's it's sort of not the story or whatever story there is is nonlinear. It's basically the depiction of a way of life that's dying that's changing and yeah. it's, it, it's yeah. i find it very very moving and uh if those of you who are fans of beyonce's lemonade uh the film that she made to go along with her album she admittedly she she said i took most of the imagery from daughters of the dust so and it's interesting because it sparked a reinterest in that film and in julie dash in general and i heard mm -hmm that she has been hired to direct a biopic of Angela Davis. Oh, really? Yep, so after, all, after almost 20 years, she may get to make film number two. She, she also, she, um, she wrote a novel as a sort of a sequel to uh, Daughters in the Dust, the, the same group of people 20 years later. It's, I mean, it's, for those who've never seen it, it's, it, and that's fairly easy to find. It's out on DVD, it's, it's streaming. It's, yeah. It takes place in the Sea Islands, you know, and it's about the Gullah culture. Um, takes place in 1902 when a bunch of this very tight-knit extended family is planning to move to the mainland of South Carolina and leave the old ways behind and, you know, try to seek jobs and, you know, not fortune, but a living in, in the city. Uh, and it's just so beautifully shot, my goodness. And well acted, you know, there are no, I don't think there are any real professional actors in it. Yeah, I think it was a non-stag movie. 
just mm. it, that's of all the films we're talking about today if you haven't seen that one that's the one to catch up on daughters of the dust it's it shows up on turner classic movies every once in a while yeah they had it as part of their women uh, film yes. series yes absolutely one of a kind uh, and, so. and julie dash is a product of queens new york yes julie dash she grew up she grew up in one of the projects wow it's fascinating because, again, I'm back to uh, the 40-year-old version, S-I-O-N, and Rod Blank grew up in the projects in Brooklyn. And what I love, you know, we're talking about, you know, when we talk about films like She's Got a Habit or Boys in the Hood, we're talking about very young men making these films. What's so fascinating about 40-year-old version is that it's the perspective of a 40-year-old African woman. <laughs> you know, who is, you know, has, as I said, has achieved some success and now is being rejected unless she makes her plays more about gentrification, more stereotypical because it sort of appeases, you know, her white uh, funders and backers. And it's just so refreshing to see that perspective. You'd never, you'd, and she decides almost on a whim to t try her hand at rap. And she's surprisingly good at it, much to her, no one's more surprised than she is. And how it unfolds, well, you'll have to see for yourself, but it's on Netflix now, and I strongly recommend it. I'm going to also mention Carl Franklin. Any Carl Franklin? Oh, yeah. yeah. One, yeah. one of my favorite films of the 90s was One False Move. Absolutely. It's a great, a great, a great movie. movie. Down in never, noir. It never shows anywhere. Ever. Yeah, I, I, I don't get it. I, I, I haven't seen it since it came out. Well, and you guys know that I love Devil in a Blue Dress, his second film, more than, more than you guys do. But mostly, it was I like Devil in a Blue Dress. I like Den Devil in a Blue Dress. Denzel's great, and it was Don Cheadle's first film. And he That's right. He steals it. He's like a bolt of electricity every time he shows up on screen. You're like, whoa, who is this guy? He's amazing. And, you know, based on the Walter Mosley novel, Easy Rollins, I mean, it's, it's just, it's a really good, I don't know why that doesn't get shown. I don't know why that didn't spawn a whole bunch of sequels. It should have. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, it could have easily. I mean, there's a series, a series of novels, so why, I don't know why that didn't happen. Exactly, and I, I assume Franklin's probably a very successful TV director now. I think so, yeah, I looked him up. There's a lot of... Uh... And Television. so it pays the bills. And I have to mention, I'm sorry, go back to the 70s. I finally got to see who, the spook who sat by the door. Have you guys seen that? I'm no. not even familiar with that. No. Oh my God. I don't know how this film got released. It was directed by Ivan Dixon, you know, the actor from- Oh, the, sure. Hogan's Heroes. Yeah, Hogan's Heroes. It tell, it's made in 1973, United Artists put it out. It tells the story of uh, a young black man from Chicago, and it starts with this white senator who's saying to his, you know, he's trying to figure out where he's losing votes, and he's losing votes among the black constituency. So he decides to pressure the CIA into finally hiring a black agent. And the CIA is like, eh, well, you know, and he's like, no, you got to, come on, it'll make me look great. And it's good for the agency too. And they said, well, all right, if we can find someone who meet, we won't lower the standards. But if we can meet someone, find someone who meets the standards, we'll and, they, and this guy makes it, and he becomes an FBI, of course, a CIA agent, rather. Of course, as soon as they hire him, they have him working in the copy room. But eventually, he kind of moves himself up, 
And after a while, he says, you know, I'm going to quit. I'm going to go back to Chicago and work as a social worker. But what he does is go back to the former gang he used to run with and using the CIA training that he got, trains them to be a guerrilla army. And then sends them, <laughs> and then sends them to sends you know one or two of them to different cities to Detroit to New York to Washington Philadelphia Boston Chicago and and you know to spread to train the people there and it's a revolution and I think there are a couple of scenes that were re that really showed some violence and really showed some nudity and I think they showed those to the and the person who ended up funding it was Herbie Hancock the musician mm. who did ah. the soundtrack to it, which is great. United Artists had no idea what they were saying yes to, and they put this out for about 20 minutes and pulled it immediately. It was in 1973? 73. I don't think it ever came to Minneapolis. No, I'm sure. Because it I was seeing everything that year, and I, I'm not familiar with that at all. But it's it's so typical. It's so typical of the '70s that because all these producers at you know the various studios and film distribution companies were just saying yes to all the young filmmakers. Sure, especially they, when they, they you know oh, let let them you know we don't know what we're doing. So and when when they saw the clips that had the sex and the violence, they were like, oh great, we've got a black exploitation film. We've got Shaft or we've got yeah. Superfly. You know, so yeah. and it's cheap. So let's let's do this. Where did you see it? Um, actually, I it was. They, I read about it, I had heard of it, and there was a huge article in the Times about it because a restored version was playing at the New York Film Festival this year in their retrospective series. Uh -huh. And so I ended up watching, it's on YouTube for free. It's, oh. it's, a, it's a pretty good copy. And boy, you, we've talked about a lot of one-of-a-kind films tonight, and that is, there is nothing like that. Can you give me the title again, Josh? Yep, The Spook Who Sat By The Door. Spook being a play on right. slang for spy and slang for person of color that used to be used. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's unbelievable. I, it, it, as someone said, uh, I think it might have been even in the Times article, it's the missing link between black exploitation and Spike Lee. It's the bridge. Huh. And it's pretty clear, and you'll see where, that Spike had seen this film because things from it show up several times in his- And Ivan Dixon directed it? The only film he ever directed. Never, never yes, I knew he had directed. Yep. So I must have heard, indirectly have heard of it. Yep, exactly. So uh, The Spook Who Sat By The Door, 1973. Yeah, Mike, check you, it out. I, I'm, it, I'm, I'm just reading about it now. It's, it sounds fascinating. Nothing like it if, if if that's the only film our audience takes away from this it was totally worth it mike you wanted to talk about uh dear uh dear white people just oh Simpson. boy do i love this movie hell yeah and when i saw it i knew nothing about it uh, i like it a lot too. And, and i have not seen the tv show yet and i and i intend to it's on my queue as so many things are but this it's is on, it's on netflix it's a netflix I know, series i know i just I haven't had time to see it yet, but I love the movie so much. I'm almost afraid of it spoiling the movie, but I, I, I understand the TV show um, is quite good. But it just deals with four students at a, at a prestigious uh, university. Um, there's Samantha, played by Tessa Thompson, who I absolutely adore. Only the most beautiful woman on the planet. She really is beautiful. <laughs> and I love her in this movie. And she does this radio show called Dear White People, 
and she's a budding filmmaker, but in the meantime, she, uh, she's having an affair with her uh, uh, TA in film class, who's white. And then there is uh, uh, Coco, who is this young woman who wants to be on a reality show and will do anything to get on it. And then there's uh, uh, Brandon Troy, who is the son of the Dean of Students, who is, is right. fighting to get to, he's black, these are all black students. And uh, he, he's fighting to be on the, um, the head of the house. And this, this woman, uh, Samantha beats him and he gets all upset. So then he decides to run for student president, but he can't uh, understand where his allegiances are. And then my favorite character is Lionel, who is uh, played by Tyler James Williams, who was the star of uh, Everybody Hates Chris. Oh, and he, he's the Justin Simeon stand-in, right? He's the- he's, Well, yeah. yes, and I, it was funny because I didn't know anything about Justin Simeon when I saw this movie. And uh, he's this reporter. He's kind of, he's sporting an Afro. He's totally out of his fashion with everyone else. And he's gay. Right. And after seeing this film I, and seeing that it was written and directed by the same man, I, I said to the person I was with, I will bet you a thousand dollars that this, this director is gay. Not because of anything in the film that was said, but just because of the, it's hard to find a young straight man who could write such a great gay character as, uh, as Lionel. And I, I, it's, it's just, it's funny, it's sad, it's dramatic. You never know where it's going to go. It's sharp. And I absolutely yeah. love this movie. And I don't think, I mean, I'm glad it, they did do a, a TV series off of it. Um, I, 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 uh, Justin Simeon is having a new movie coming out on Hulu uh, called Bad Hair. It's a comedy horror movie. Well, I right. think it's We're Bad Hair. Appeals, I, I didn't so write it down. But it's coming out in, uh, in November. And I, I'm going to get Hulu just to see it because I, I'm just so, and this is his, uh, the first uh, uh, feature length film he's directed since Dear White People, though he has directed a, a few of the episodes of the TV series. The TV series. Uh, yeah. uh, yes. Please, I, if you no, haven't yeah, really, seen it. I like the movie it. a lot. I have seen, I have seen the series. I watched all, all the seasons. The first season is really good. Uh -huh. um, yeah, um, I really like the use of the music in it too, and pretty much everyone in it is good, and it's a lot of the same actors are in it. Yeah, yeah, I I, I know Brandon Bell is in it. Um, very 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 smart film. Did you guys see Sorry to Bother You, Boots Riley's first film? Oh yeah, that yeah. was that was hilarious. That was it was I thought it lost control. Yes. You, you lose me at the horse people, but the whole thing with Danny Glover, you know, telling him to use his white voice, that scene is just priceless. Yo, that, that was great. There's so much good stuff in there. And uh, smart. And also, I don't know who directed I forget who directed it, but the film that David Diggs was in about Oakland, uh, Blind Spotting. Oh, yeah. We, we talked about that yes. on our 10 best. Yeah. Of, of 2018. Uh, of, uh, 2018. I love that movie. Good movie. And Michael, did, did a black director make The Last Black Man in San Francisco? Because I remember you loved that. I am pretty sure it wasn't. Because after mm. I'd seen it, I, I remember looking him up. I think it is a white, uh, it was a white director, although I do love that movie. Yeah, and that, it that's hasn't even been on TV. And, and it's uh, really, really good. 
you know, I, and aside from Jordan Peele, um, who sort of developed his own mini genre with us and, uh, and Get Out, um, mm -hmm. a couple of lesser known films by the two standouts, I think. Well, you know, let's throw Barry Jenkins in there too, but uh, Ava DuVernay, um, the series she did on the Central Park Five, When They See Us. Amazing. That was great. Amazing. I, I think that's one of the best things that's been done anywhere in the last few years. Just so, so powerful and, and moving and every single person was excellent. Flawless, flawless acting. Yeah, I agree. And that that yeah. second Just, episode where they railroad them into the confessions with, was almost, was unwatchably good. I mean, oh, yeah. I hesitated to. It's, it's, it's hard. It's not easy to watch, but anyone, anyone out there listening has not seen it. I, you have to see it. You have to. I was hesitant to watch it because I remember when that happened and I remember thinking they were guilty. Everybody because did. The, the media did it. And, I, and then when they were found, you know, not the DNA found, uh, found it against for them, I thought, oh my God, what if they had been executed? I, I just felt so horrible. You remember your president and mine took out a oh, uh, full page yeah. ad saying uh, that justice needs to be served. Oh, yeah. No, every, every, everybody did in the very beginning thought that they were guilty just because of the way we got the information. If you were really paying attention as, it, as you, a little bit more information started to creep out and you kept paying attention and reading up on everything, you, you could tell something was not right. Yeah. And that district attorney still insists that they're guilty. She's suing, I think. I think there's a lawsuit against the film. Yes. Is she really? Yeah, I'm that pretty sure. Yep. So, um, and if you, um, everyone saw Selma, which is hers. Um, I love Selma. And hopefully people will see the documentary she made called 13th. I saw that. Netflix. That's on Netflix. The 13th Amendment. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Her only misstep was Wrinkle in Time, which worries me because, you know, it was a big Hollywood production. It did not go anywhere, but that's okay. She didn't get her opportunities. And for Ryan Coogler, you know, who's only directed three films, but they were in reverse order, Black Panther, Creed, and Fruitvale Station. I don't know if a lot of people have seen Fruitvale Station. You guys- I love that movie. That's my favorite of his three. I think it's just, first of all, I had never watched Friday Night Lights or any of the series that Michael B. Jordan was in, so that was really my introduction to mm, him. Me either. And he was just extraordinary. He was He's a so wonderful like, actor. Who is this guy? And but I, yeah, I but gotta I, be frank, I'm not a fan of Creed. I love it. To uh, me, it And I was, don't like the Rocky series. So. Well, I, I only saw the first Rocky, which I still think is one of the, when we do 70s Oscars, is the most overrated a movie to win the best oh, yeah, picture of that decade. That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, but, um, um, and to me, it was basically the same story with Sylvester Stallone now playing the Burgess Meredith role. And I, I just thought, eh, yeah, but why am I seeing this again? And that was the year I had to see it because I was a nominator for uh, the SAG Awards. Right. And I, I was just not impressed. And I was so happy when Stallone lost. Everybody thought he was going to win the Oscar. He didn't. Well, uh, I, yeah. I, I think that a lot of people saw Creed. A lot of people's uh, Coogler did. Oh, Creed was a big hit. And it, he didn't yeah. direct Creed too, but he produced it. But if you haven't seen Fruitvale Station. Oh, God, that's so good. Perfect little gem of a film. I wouldn't yeah. show a second of it. Um, Beautifully edited. And so 
Uh, anything else you guys want to add in terms of films we haven't mentioned? Yeah, I have oh one. My God. Um, and it just came out last uh, December. And oh boy, this is a good movie. Queen and Slim. Oh boy, written by Lena Waite. Yep. Yep, Lena Waite and directed by Melinda Masuska. Is that am I pronouncing that right? I think so. Um, and I, I knew nothing about her. Uh, she directed, she's directed several videos, uh, music videos for Beyonce, none of which I've seen. And then she directed episodes of Insecure. Have you watched that? Easter Rage? Uh, yeah. I, I know of it. I've seen a little bit of it, but... Um, it's good. It's good. She's good. Yeah, I love She's it. very good. She's hosting Saturday Night Live this week, and, and I, I look forward to it. I like her a lot. Uh, but, oh my God, this is so good. It's... And it was described as sort of a black Bonnie and Clyde, which is ridiculous. I mean, but it, 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 it's, it's basically these, uh, Daniel Kalua. am I pronouncing that right? Kalua, yeah, who's Kalua get and Jody Turner-Smith, both, as you know, are, uh, they're both British actors, but <laughs> you would never know it. Uh, they play these two people who meet on a uh, blind date, you know, online date um, in Cleveland, and the date doesn't seem to be going well, and then they drive home and they get stopped by a cop, and through circumstances, they wind up shooting him. Mm. The cop's fault, but, and it just, they go through this, this uh, trip from Cleveland to New Orleans, to her family's house, to Florida, I, I cannot say enough good stuff about this movie, and I am kicking myself for missing it when it was at the theater because it got wonderful reviews. And I don't know what the business, how it did in business, but this is really definitely one of the best films of 2019. Well, it's a, and it's a featured film on HBO. It's so featured, It's, it's on that, HBO yeah, I now. To, I know it's been showing. I, I, oh, it's, it's so good. I, I, I can't say enough good, good things about this movie. I'm going to throw one more wild card in there. Um, a, a, um, an action film directed by um, an African-American female director named Gina Prince-Blythewood uh, called The Old Guard with Charlize Theron. A, just a great, totally stupid uh, action film. And, you know, Charlize Theron miraculously proved her action chops in Mad Max Fury Road. And this is just wonderful. It's a, it's a surprising little film, just sort of a classic hero film, very much worth seeing, so I'm throwing that in. Johnny, anything else from you? No, I, I mostly want to emphasize when they see us. I just, because I've met so few people who have seen it, and I just, it, it, it bothers me when I find out that not that many people have seen it, because it's, it's so good and it's, and it's important. Yeah, absolutely true. So, there it I is. And before oh we get off the subject, I, oh, did, I do want to make a correction from the last episode. Correct away. Correct away. I said that Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was the first mainstream movie to feature an interracial kiss. And that's not true. John pointed it out to me. A movie uh, from 1957 called Island in the Sun with Harry Belafonte mm. and Joan Fontaine, uh, Dorothy Dandridge and James Mason. And that had actually had the first interracial kiss between Joan Fontaine and Harry Belafonte. And apparently Joan Fontaine got a lot of threatening mail uh, and had yeah. to get, send the letters to the FBI. 
I will say one thing in my defense. First of all, I didn't think Island in the Sun was very good. I totally had forgotten. No, that. no, it's it's unfortunate because it's a movie. Uh, I've seen it, and it's a movie that I wish was made again now. Yeah, because Today the would... story, the story, and the premise is really good, really, really interesting. Yeah, but uh, it was like it's it's a little timid. There's there's moments where you're kind of like, is it is it going to happen? What's going to happen? And then they they back away, especially with the Dorothy Dandridge character. Oh yeah. In a supporting role, and this was her first film in three years. I know, years. yeah, it's, um, it was kind of. But when it when it opened, it it was considered successful, but it only played in major big cities. It didn't play anywhere in the South. Yeah, and, I can see why. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, and um, it even it, there were even and it didn't play in small towns, and it, and it grossed all right for that kind of movie. But when Guess Who's Coming to Dinner came out. That was an amazingly huge hit. It was the highest grossing movie that Columbia Pictures ever had. Really? And it was the first movie to play in all theaters, including in the South. Uh, if a theater wouldn't show it, another theater would just open it up because everybody wanted to see it. And I don't think it was so much the subject matter, but it was to see Tracy one last time. I, yeah. I suspect that had a lot to do with it. But it was, uh, it was like a, I think the second or the third highest grossing movie of that year. It did much, much better than In the Heat of the Night, which didn't have that kind of um, play in the, like in the Southern cities. So that was, that was banned in, no. in big chunks. <laughs> yeah. So, but Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was not the first. Island in the Sun is the first, and I stand corrected. Well, my fellow science fiction nerds all know that the first interracial kiss on television was on Star Trek between well, yes. William Shatner and Michelle Nichols. Even I know that. Even Michael knows that, and he's not even a Trek fan. So there you go. Um, so there you have it. I'm, you know, our hope is that we have been able to reintroduce or introduce you to some lesser known films by people who are well known, like Spike Lee, like John Singleton in that generation, and also in this generation of filmmakers like Avery Verne and Ryan Coogler. Um, and that we've led you towards some harder to find, lesser known works by people like Carl Franklin, Julie Dash, Charles Burnett, Van Peebles' son and father, and um, Gordon Parks. And so that you'll, you'll find your way through these films and see the contribution that these directors have made. So to move to our necrology, of course, we talked about Chadwick Boseman at the top, which is almost a, an incalculable loss. I mean, consider what he might have done if he had had the time. But we also lost the person who, in my humble opinion, having been an insane James Bond fan, was in the 25 films by far the best of the James Bond women, not girls, I will say, and that is Dame Diana Rigg. Yes. Um, in Her Majesty's Secret Service. And, you know, I love her as Emma Peel, who does, and anyone our, our age who's male sort of has to love her as Emma Peel. Oh, wow. Um, Did, but she didn't make too many films. films. She was but, great in the Avengers. She was great in the Avengers. I don't oh, know. Oh God, yeah. I am. I am on the, very much on the side of on Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's a film that because Connery wasn't in it, it was the you know George Lazenby doing his one shot, kind of got ignored at the time. But it's a really good film, and she I thought it great. wasn't bad. I don't know why it got such 
terrible press. He's kind of terrible. He's kind of mannequin-like, and he well, ain't either. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. But I love that movie. And, um, and you know, of course, you know, Mike and John tell, you know, she had an unmatched theater career. Oh, yeah. Her Medea, did you see her when she did Medea? No. Oh, it was, it was incomparable. She was so brilliant. And, and she did a movie in the uh, 60s. She was, um, played Helena. Yes, in a Midsummer Night's Dream. Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, which Peter is, Hall, that, which was a wonderful film. Um, yeah, I think very, much better than the had, 30s. She had an important part yeah. on Game of Thrones. I never, yeah. watched, I never watched. I didn't either. Yeah, but she I had remember an important, seeing. She had an important role in Game of Thrones. So anybody who's a Game of Thrones fan knows of Diana Rigg. Oh sure, she I worked till the she died. I mean, uh, yeah. she's wonderful in the hospital. The Arthur oh yeah. Uh, yeah 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 and there's a little um, i don't know if you guys ever saw it a horror film from the early 70s theater of blood with uh, vincent price vincent price oh, sure he plays his that. daughter and all these critics who get killed via shakespearean right. it, it's all it's really a comedy it's not really a horror film. yeah but yeah. you have all these wonderful actors getting killed one by one uh, uh, Jack Hawkins and Arthur Lowe and uh, uh, Robert Coote. It's it's just a wo wonderful uh, movie to watch, and she's I great. In it. Seeing her in the uh, Laurence Olivier Lear that was brought yeah. here, she was Regan, and boy, is that a thankless part! But she was it wonderful is. in it. Um, and um, that's a lot. And Michael, you had a couple of others that you. I do have a couple of others. I have um, Michael Chapman, uh, the cinematographer, known for. Raging Bull. If he does nothing driver. else, he'd be one of the great. Yeah, I, yeah. I was just gonna say, if he did nothing else, uh, that, there's your career right there because that is yeah. one of the most beautifully yeah. shot, smart shot. I mean, intelligently shot movies I've ever ever seen. That ever will be. That that and film with class in cinematography. It, and he also did um, his his debut was The Last Detail, and then he did Taxi Driver, uh, The Last Waltz. Uh, Scrooged, uh, invasion, the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And he also directed a couple of movies, not great movies, uh, All the Right Moves. Oh, with Tom Cruise, sure. Yeah, mm, you know how I feel about him. <laughs> You're a big fan, big, big fan. And uh, Clan <laughs> of the Cave Bear, he directed that one. Oi, with Daryl Hannah? Yeeks. Yeah. Yeesh. And he was the assistant cinematographer for The Godfather, Clute, and The Landlord. He assisted uh, Gordon Willis. Mm. He was a good pupil of Gordon Willis. Yeah. Oh boy. But and then I went a brief shout out to Murray Schiskel. Sure. The playwright, but who wrote Love and wrote the screenplay and also The Tiger Makes Out, and that was made into a film. But he was one of the two credited writers for Tootsie, him and Larry Gelbart. Apparently, everybody wrote scenes in that movie. Uh, <laughs> Elaine May, Barry Levinson are uncredited. Uh, Apparently Bill Murray wrote some of his own dialogue, but Tootsie is one of the, I think, great accidents of all time. Yeah. <laughs> that movie had such bad press, Hoffman and Sidney Pollack were at each other's throats, and it turned out to be so great. It, it, uh, I think yeah, everybody, I mean, I remember before it came out, everyone thought it was gonna be a disaster, and the rumors about to the screenplay, and, and so many people having to do rewrites, and it just, you know, it, it sounded like it was going to be terrible. And 
everyone was pleasantly surprised when they went to go see it. It's one of the best comedies ever. I, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, certainly one of the best comedies of the 80s. Maybe one and, of the oh, yeah. really bad. Apparently when uh, Murray Shisko and Larry Gelbart received the New York Film Critics Award, that's where they first met <laughs> at the <laughs> award ceremony. They had never met each other because each, each had a hand in writing, you know, I, I don't know who wrote what, but it, it turns out great. It doesn't, doesn't look like a movie that was written by a lot of people. And that's the ultimate. No, it doesn't. No, it's, 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 uh, it, there's, it's seamless. I mean, there's yep. a whole yeah. straight through, start to finish. And then one more, I have uh, Sir Ronald Harwood, who um, won the Oscar for his adaptation of Roman Polanski's The Pianist. Oh, is that a good movie? He also wrote the play and the screenplay of The Dresser, and he wrote adaptations of The Diving Bell and The Butterfly, Being Julia, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. And most recently, he wrote an adaptation of his own play, Quartet. And I want to say a little something about that movie because it's right now it's on Netflix. And I think it's a small gem and most people haven't seen it. I yeah, I've never movie. seen it. What, okay. oh, oh, yeah. Check it out. Check, Check it, it out. out. It's, it's, it's about a... It's a apparently based on a true story. It's about a rest home or a retirement home in, in rural England for classical musicians um. and opera singers. And it's got a wonderful cast. Uh, Maggie Smith is the lead and she's playing a very different type of part than she's been playing the last 10 years in um, Downton Abbey. She, she plays a vulnerable retired uh, opera singer, Sir Tom Courtney, plays the man that she was married to for a week. And they're both put into, in this uh, rest home together. And Pauline Collins is in it. She's from Shirley Valentine. She's wonderful. Um, uh, Billy Conroy and uh, Michael Gabon. And then all of these real tight retired musicians hmm. or opera singers. And there is a story and it, it, it's just a joy to watch. And it's been on Netflix for the past year. And if you have Netflix, please watch this movie. I'm going and be sure to watch the credits because you see photographs of uh, the retired uh, singers and musicians. Yeah. Uh, you know, from the movie, and then you see them when they were in their heyday. It, it's yeah. just, I just watched it again last week. Yeah, it's a wonderful and movie. I love that movie. And, and it's, it's, and to me, Tom Courtney is one of the most underrated of the British uh, knights. Oh, he's, Tom Courtney's great. You mentioned yeah. the dresser. I loved him in the dresser. Oh, and the, and the dresser is quite good too. Yep. But anyway, quartet, um, Netflix. By the, I'm just thinking, I don't know what, what popped it into my head. The only other thing I've seen that's relatively new is the new Charlie Kaufman. Uh, yeah, I've seen all but the last 20 minutes. <laughs> you couldn't make it through, huh? It's typical well, Charlie Kaufman. I, I haven't, haven't watched it yet. It was more weird than good, I thought. I've, you know, but it's, I, I, the film is called I'm Thinking of Ending Things, and it's a, it's a breakup film, but... Yep. And a lot more than that. But I felt that way about Synecdoche, New York, which is the only other live action film that he's directed. Yeah. And, and, but, I, but I wanted to go back to it. it. I felt that there was enough there that it wasn't just weird for weirdness's sake. I felt like I really wanted to go back and, and get more out of it. I got really looped when she was quoting Pauline Kael's review of a woman <laughs> under the influence. I thought, why is this wow. happening? Well, and I remember that, that uh, review. 
I remember the, uh, what she had said at the time, and I thought, oh my God, I've heard this before. And then I realized, <laughs> oh my God. And she's you know, lifting, done, he's lifting Pauline Kale of all people. Done very deliberately and- Oh, I know, of course. The one, the one time, I think we all agree that the one time the Kaufman thing really works is, is Eternal Sunshine. Oh, yeah. I don't know whether it's Gondry's hands- I love that movie. Or, but it's the one time that that just structural, you know, folding back in on itself and the weirdness and it just really comes together. Well, Kaufman mode- Adaptation, didn't he? I was gonna say, you don't like adaptation? I like yeah. that. I like adaptation a lot. Yeah. And I love Malkovich too, but. Um, yeah. But. Yeah. Mal Malkovich is. <laughs> it's when so he's funny. Inside his own head, that's when, when Malkovich is inside his own, it's, that's just pure joy. <laughs> Plus, John, you know, Cusack and Catherine Keener. But. <laughs> All right. So it, for our next episode, just in time for Election Day. We're going to be talking about our favorite political films, uh, American political films. Oh, and by the way, I wanted to mention that, um, that our, my last comment on our main topic today, we didn't deal with people like Steve McQueen because we were just trying to restrict it to African-American directors. Steve McQueen is yeah. British, by the way, of West Indies. But there are some unbelievably gifted um, African filmmakers, Afro-British and Caribbean filmmakers, you know, Steve McQueen. I mean, Steve McQueen had the closing film at New York Film Festival. Ooh, so, have you heard anything about it? Uh, no, it's, a, it's, it's individual stories strung together. Um, oh, interesting. I, I have not heard much about it, but based on his four other films, I definitely want to see it. Oh, yeah. So, so check those out. But we are going for political films next time. I haven't decided whether we should do like explicitly about politics or more sort of the general American character thing. But we'll figure that out uh, as we go. Well, you're, you're, you're sort of bringing up a question which I will bring up to the two of you after we're finished. All right, fair enough. So this again is Vintage Sand episode 24. We are as always a five nines and a four production. We want to thank Melissa, Cabot for the technical help, Mama Sue for the space, and Gabby for our cool-ass logo. Uh, remember, fans, that we are now on Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Uh, please check out the website. Leave us your feedback, suggestions. Uh, you know, I'm Michael, I think we now definitely have to do uh, alternate Oscars for the 70s as our next, next episode. I think that's going to be a, a, a free-for-all. That that's that's my favorite decade. Yep, and say to our, we actually do have a lot of fans. I'm starting to starting to realize we do. Thank you all for listening, and just whatever you do, make a plan, do it. Have to, ever you have to do, get out there and vote and vote, vote, happy, vote. Yep, happy watching. Wash your hands. Pretty much stay inside unless you unless you have to get out. And Why be an American if you don't vote? Yeah, seriously. Vote, people, seriously. And may your favorite films always be streaming, our classic benediction. Thanks, everybody.